This is the Peers to Peers podcast, powered by The Peers Project. Hello, peers. Welcome to the Peers to Peers podcast. Peers speaking, peers listening. This is a conversation for you. I'm your host, Michelle Akitanor, founder of The Peers Project, millennial entrepreneur, world traveller, podcast expert, and forever your fellow passionate peer. Each week, I invite inspiring millennial entrepreneurs from around the globe to chat with me. No filters, just real talk, peer-to-peer. Together, we unpack what it takes to go your own way and why there's nothing better. As always, thank you for listening. If you enjoy our podcast, please do pass it on. The more peers, the merrier. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Peers to Peers podcast. You know the drill. After setting grand expectations of how you want your business or careers to succeed, you hustle nonstop until your goals are met. But what if there was a different way of achieving success with less grind and more mind and heart? That answer is revealed by our next guest, Adam Schwartz. While Adam's early startups gained minimal traction, none skyrocketed as high as Public, the e-commerce marketplace where artists can sell their designs on apparel, art prints and home goods. More than just a marketplace, Public is on a mission to empower creatives to turn passion into profit. Since its inception, it has only continued to go from strength to strength by landing Adam on the Forbes 30 Under 30 list and being acquired by Redbubble.com for a phenomenal 57 million Australian dollars. I'm so excited to talk to Adam today about the lessons he's learnt from starting and growing various startups and how adjusting his expectations was the key to scaling Public to the company it is today. For those of you who haven't yet, make sure to take a screenshot of this episode right now Post it to your Instagram story and tag us at The Peers Project so that other peers out there can benefit from the wisdom of these Forbes 30 under 30 listees. Okay, without further ado, here is my conversation with the brilliant Adam Schwartz. Adam. Welcome to the Peers to Peers podcast. We're so excited to have you on the show today. I'm excited to be here. Awesome. Cool. So, you know, you and I connected recently over LinkedIn. And when I looked into you and the brilliant work you're doing in the e-commerce space, I knew I had to have you come on the show. So I really appreciate you taking the time. My pleasure. Awesome. So for those of us who don't know who you are and what you do, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. So I am the co-founder and CEO of a company called T-Public. We, are, uh, we have a mission to empower artists to turn their passion into profit. And we do that through an e-commerce marketplace that we built that allows uh, graphic artists to upload their works to the platform, sell it across the world. Uh, we do all of their production and fulfillment, which helps them to reach scale. Um, 
And that business uh, was sold back in November and, and is now part of a, a larger organization uh, based in Australia called Redbubble. Mm. When I saw that, I was so intrigued. I was like, it's never an Aussie company, <laughs> let's be honest. Um, but no, Redbubble's huge um, back home. And it's actually in my hometown, which is really exciting, the headquarters. Um, so that's awesome. Okay, I really want to deep, dive deeper into your work. But before we do, I want to start with a question that I've often found to be very insightful and revealing. And that is, where did you grow up and how has this impacted the choices you've made in your life and in your career so far? Yeah, I love it. Uh, I grew up outside of Boston um, and actually think it impacted, it impacted my choices greatly. Uh, the reason that, that my family grew up in Boston were originally uh, New Yorkers is uh, there's this highway in Boston called 128, and it's it's sort of referred to as like the technology loop. And my dad was in is in was in tech semiconductors, um, and you know there there was a boom of that in the 70s and 80s. You know, very similar to what we're seeing now with uh, you know with the web and mobile. Um, and so that's what brought us there. And so the, the reason that I grew up in Boston was because it, we, we were in the shadow of this tech sector. Um, and so I think, I think that informed uh, the way that I thought about, you know, what business could be and what was exciting and interesting about business and dinner conversations at my house were about, you know, new technologies and new things that were coming out. And so I, I think that definitely played a, played a role in, in how I ended up in, in tech. Super interesting. I always love asking that question because I find there are so many influences from when we were children, from our parents, from when we grew up as to, yeah, that influenced what we're doing today. So talk to us a little bit about that time there. So Boston, you know, what did you love to do as a child there? So obviously your family was very much in business, talking about tech. Was there some, Did you love to get involved in tech when you were younger or was it more just creating things? Talk to us a little bit about that. I was I was actually more of an outdoor kid. Um, we I, we grew up in like surrounded in nature. I grew up on a nature preserve, and so I, I really spent my time like outside playing. That that was I mean that that's what felt best to me. Um, spent a lot of time though. Uh, we were, it was a very musical household. You know, my brother and I. You know, both both played a lot of instruments. Um, it was a theatrical household and I have a lot of theater in my family. So we were, we were also both involved in that. And it was actually my brother who was more, I mean, he was the one who was taking apart computers and putting them back together again and, and really figuring out how all of that worked. And he's the older brother and I'm the younger brother. So I would just sort of watch him do it. And I think that, um, between, between my dad's influence and my brother's influence, like these are the two men, you know, as a boy that I look up to most you know, they're both really interested in this thing that I don't actually get. And it, it wasn't until I, I got a little bit older where I think that that influence really started to pervade. pervade. And, and I, you know, as, as I was in college and starting to think about what I was going to do with my life, that, that's when it really clicked in for me. Um, because when I was younger, I was, I was sort of like watching them do it. I love that. And it's it's so funny when you see older siblings doing things and you think, oh, I just want to be like them. So I just want to do that. I had that with my sister. She, um, you know, was always out and about doing cool things in, you know, in business with her friends, very social. And I was always like, oh, I want to do something like that. And here we are and podcasting yeah. <laughs> every day. So <laughs> kind of rubs off. Um, I love that. Cool. So let's dive a bit 
deeper into those university days. So you went to the University of Florida um, and Bachelor of Tech. Tele- telecommunications operations management and business is what I'm understanding. Um, tell us a little bit about that time there and, and what that kind of taught you about yourself. Yeah, um, you know, I went there because I mean, there's a lot of schools in, in Boston and that's sort of the thing, but I really wanted to leave and, and see something different and specifically wanted a college town uh, and a college experience that was unique to that moment in my life and like wasn't something I'd be able to get again. Um, and the University of Florida is, is definitely, definitely that. Gainesville is like the preeminent college, full college town, you know, 50,000 kids. And... Um, the, the telecom ops management was interesting. I, I knew that I was I wanted to be within business, um, but but potentially on like on the media side or on the tech side. You know, I knew I wasn't going to go into financial accounting. Let's say, and so the the telecom major and the communication school, as opposed to the business school, was essentially like, well, this is the business of media. Uh, at that time, at the University of Florida, it was this is how you run a radio station or a TV station. Um, and they had all of those things and you could do all of those things. Um, but it was as close as I can get. And now they have an innovation center and you can do all the stuff that I really wanted to do at the University of I was just talking to them yesterday, actually. And they've got all, all the stuff that I, I wish I had. But I was just trying to get close. Um, what is amazing about the University of Florida and what I, what I really got out of it, what like shaped me there was because it's such a large school, Whatever, whatever space you're playing in, whether, you know, if, it, if it's media or if it's government or whatever, there's huge budgets, it's huge scale because there's just so many kids. So, so you get like hands-on experience that, that really is informative. It's not like, wow, there's 20 people who like come, you know, work on this radio station. It's like, no, this is like 500 people work at this rate or something. So it's, it's big scale. Um, and I did a lot of entrepreneurial things uh, while at UF. You know, my... My dinner conversations there were with my friends about what business we were going to start. Um, uh, some of them that we did while we were in school, you know, we were always scheming and, and coming up with, you know, some some sort of like hustle business that we could, you know, sell to our our classmates. Um, or, or we were thinking about what we were going to do when we graduated. But but there was a lot of entrepreneurial spirit there, um, and, and so we, you know, it was a time where I was experimenting a lot with like what it meant to start an organization and make something out of nothing. Mm. I love that. And I think I think those days are so defining, you know, those college days, you know, and it, it's just so cool to see that you, it was such an entrepreneurial environment and it really kind of encouraged you to go out there and talk about businesses and get, think about ideas and, you know, think, think about how you can turn something into nothing, nothing into something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and it's so funny because I had a completely different experience and it was all, you know, gearing up for corporate and, and you know, I did a business degree as well, but, you know, not communications mm-hmm. business. And it was all, you know, what corporation can you get into, get into consulting, banking, you know, that kind of thing. And it's just so funny that it really does shape, you know, where you end up going. And thankfully I've, I've gotten out of that now, but, um, you know, it, it does really play a role. Um, okay. So talk to us a little bit about that move from Florida back to your hometown, um, New York, and that early business venture you started, I think it's Source for Style, did that for about two years. Talk to us a little bit about that. Sure. Uh, so when I came when I came to New York, I uh, actually had a brief uh, time in Las Vegas before that, but <laughs> um, 
when I came to New York, uh, my brother was already here and he was in tech. And so started, started hanging around with him and his friends who were in that space. Um, and essentially what he identified for me and what that space identified for me was that the way that you could be a career entrepreneur was through tech startups, which, I mean, I sort of want to stress like in 2008 is just, just not what it people, the way people think of it today. I mean, it was, it was particularly in New York. This is not the Valley. Certainly wasn't then everybody in New York tech in that moment fit in a room and did. Um, and so I was just hanging around trying to pick up whatever I could pick up in, in freelance work, or can I help you with your project? Can I do a thing for you? Um, and so one, one of the things I was doing was, uh, I went to a digital, like a PR agency basically. And I said, you should have a social media manager because your clients who you're doing PR for, that they're going to want to have some sort of social media marketing strategy. Um, and you should let me do that. And they said, well, that's a fad and, and they're, they're not going to want that. Like, that, what are you talking about? I mean, it just, it was not a thing. Um, but they said, if you want to hang around, if anybody wants it, we'll let you know and, and you can do it. Uh, lo and behold, some people did want it. <laughs> and um, I, so I started, I started doing that work for some of their smaller, you know, younger company clients, basically. One of those... Um, was this this woman, Summer Rain Oaks, who had just written a book about sustainable fashion. Um, her and I, as a product of that, got to talking about what the challenges were in that space and, and in the environmental space in general, which were primarily that there, there was market demand for sustainable fashion on the consumer side. Um, there were a lot of designers who wanted to to create with, with sustainable fashion design, design sustainably, use sustainable textiles. But, but the actual process of sourcing those textiles was, was just you know, really, really difficult for, for those folks. Uh, it's, it was difficult for major brands, no less sort of mid, mid-size or independent fashion designers, let's say, boutique, boutique size. Um, and so we started talking about solving that problem and ultimately decided to go, to go off and start, start a company, which was then called Source for Style. It's now called Lasuk, um, which would be a B2B marketplace where fashion designers could source sustainable textiles from, from global suppliers. Um, neither of us really knowing what we were doing. <laughs> uh, we just tried to, we did all the startup stuff. We just, you know, I was very young um, and we, we just, we just tried to figure it out and, you know, built a website and started calling all these people up and, and tried to create a marketplace. I find it so fascinating just even hearing this story. I've read, read a bit about you, but just hearing it now and it, it's so evident that with whatever you've done, it seems, you've just kind of put your hand up and stood forward and, and kind of knocked on the door many times until it opened. And I think that's a skill that's just so in, you know, invaluable. How can we, you know, for our peers out there listening who, who want more opportunities, who want to progress their businesses or who want to start a business, how can we gain the courage to keep knocking on the door? I think that, um, I think, for me, the, the mindset that I always had, and I think it's, it's, uh, and it's truly a mindset, <laughs> is I think you have less to lose than you think you do. Mm. Um, I think that people have irrational fears of failure that 
that they will not be able to, to say, you know, you can always go back to management consulting. <laughs> yes. You know, the, the, that, that door is not going to just close on you for the rest of your life and you'll never be able to get back there. Um, you, you can always, you know, it, you can always go back and, and, and get a job and do that thing. Um, there are only, though, probably a handful of moments in your life where you have the passion and the, the, the moment is right and the market is right and, and you feel a longing in your soul, which is, I have to do this thing. And I think it's about really listening to yourself and, and listening to deep, deep, deep down, what is it that you want to do? How do you want to spend your day? And if, and if the thing that you're doing is not that, you know, I, I don't, I don't, there, there's nothing more important for us to be, uh, you know, to be courageous about than, than, than listening. Mm. How do we listen better? Um, I think for me, uh, you know, I'll mention two, two things. The, the first is, um, when you're, when you're young, um, or even sometimes when you're old, but you, you figure it out later, um, you are, maybe you're at university and you're being told, well, you know, you can, you can be a management consultant, you can be a banker, you, you know, th- these, are, these are safe paths, go, go one of these directions. And I think part of the, the issue for a lot of people is they're not given the optionality of, of the other choices that you have, and, and you do have them. And so I think the, the first bit is really taking time to be intentional about your choices um, and asking yourself, like, well, how is it that I ended up here and why am I here? Um, and, and going through a methodical process of exploration and research where, where you're making sure that you're exposing yourself to all of the possibilities. And w- one of the things that was really useful for me was in that period where I was doing the, the, the social media work and I was going up to all of these people at like networking events and saying, hey, can I just help you with your thing? was I exposed myself to a lot of different business models, a lot of different frameworks for thinking, a lot of different, you know, maybe maybe this is a mobile product or maybe this is a web product or maybe this is a SaaS business. I mean, in this case, it was all in, in tech, but, you know, for two years, I just got a view of a lot of different stuff. And actually, I think that's one of the ways management consulting can be a good thing for young people. Um, so I think, I think that's the first thing. I mean, when I talk to people in their 20s, I say, you need to expose yourself to a few different looks here um, so that you don't get 10 years into your career and say, I actually never explored anything else, so I don't even know if I like this or not. The second is you have to have, um, you have, to have a peer group, mm-hmm. uh, which you know, <laughs> and, oh, or you have to have, I mean, I've been, I've been, I've had executive coaching, you know, for the last three years and could not have scaled my business and, and taken T public to, to where we took it without it. Um, because that has, has acted as, as a mirror to reflect back my own, my own feelings, my own intuitions, my own fears that has allowed me to, uh, you know, really come into contact with those and say, okay, you know, well, what is my vision for this company and how do I want management to work and what do I want to do next? And and really someone to ask you those hard questions, I think is invaluable. Mm. 
I, I could not agree more. And I just think that it's when you find your the right peer group or when you when you seek out the people who you think could really help you or you could support each other or whether it's a mentor or or a peer, you know, I think that, yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think that really helps you progress in so many ways. Okay, so this is super interesting conversation. I love it. Great. So I want to dive a bit deeper into your story. So you progressed from your first startup, your first venture, through to Busted Teas. So you were the COO there. I find I found this super interesting because I'd love to know how you got this opportunity. You know, you went from running your own thing to then, okay, I'm going to go work for someone. And, and you grew their re- revenue from like by 100%, I think it was, in 24 months, which is huge. I've got here, tell us your secrets so we can dive deeper into that later. But talk to us a little bit about the transition to Busted Teas. Yeah, so there there came a point in the original startup where it wasn't working that well. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, I decided I'm going to go do another thing. And sort of back to what we were just talking about, I'm at a party. Um, it's a party that's full of tech people. And I'm talking to one of my friends there and I say, hey, I'm going to move on from Source for Style. Just want to let you know if you know anybody, you know, who's doing something cool, let me know. And he said, yeah, actually, I think I want to introduce you to somebody. So he introduced me to Josh Abramson, who was the founder of uh, College Humor, Vimeo, and Busted Tees. All three of those companies were founded by the same group of founders. Uh, and then all three were sold sort of as under one umbrella company to IAC, who's, who's you know, here in New York, a big media company that buys up, you know, all, all sorts of companies, you know. Um, he had done that. He had sold those businesses in 2006. It's now uh, five years later. And he was getting ready to leave. Um, and he said, I want to take Busted Tees with me when I go. IAC isn't really doing anything with it. It's it's very small. It's a very small business, you know, for them to care about. He had really spent the last five years working on college humor, um, working in media, and but Busted Tees was it had a brand, um, it had good traffic, and it was already profitable, and so. Uh, he was looking for somebody to help him run it, somebody who had some e-commerce experience, somebody who had some digital marketing experience so that we could grow it. Uh, And I thought it sounded really interesting for two reasons. The first was um, I had just tried to start this business that never really got off the ground in a significant way. And here was this, this business busted tease that was already in second gear. And I said, that'll be perfect. I'll go run this business and I'll see what step two looks like Mm -hmm. so that when I go back and start a company, you know, I'm not going to be completely lost when we get to cash flow positive or when you get to some traffic. I'll know what that bit looks like. And I'll start to, again, expose myself to, you know, to to, to the different stages of, you know, what what building a company looks like. Um, The second thing was it was profitable and it was Josh's intention that I... Where, where he and I just vibed immediately was we can do this and we can do this without raising venture, mm. which means that the the optionality for what this business can become and what success can look like and how we run it will be completely up to us. We'll have total agency over this. Whereas, you know, in, in the previous business, we were very much beholden to how much and how successfully we we're able to raise money. 
that's the way the entire industry works. And so I said, ooh, we can do, I don't know anybody in my entire peer group who has a profitable business, <laughs> right? Most of them at that time, 2011, I mean, that was in the phase where a lot of people didn't even make any money. There was no revenue. Now we're in a phase of there's revenue, it's not profitable. <laughs> but then it was like, business model? No, we don't have that. We're just getting users. Yeah. I said, wow, that's totally different. And so we went about the work of getting it out of IAC. I actually worked there for a little while during the transition, which was interesting. And in, and, and in effect, what that means, you know, it's essentially a mini private equity deal where, where we're taking out this this business that we think that we can turn around. It was fairly, it hadn't grown negatively at that point for three years. Um, we figured that the fundamentals of the business would be sound because it was owned by this big corporation. That kind of didn't turn out to be true. <laughs> um, and then and then we got to work. I love that. Okay. It's, it's always so interesting to see how these things start. And you're so right when you say that it's... <laughs> Everyone, people think business or I think just this misconception around business and even tech that everyone's making all this money and there's all this, you know, there's all this thing happening. And it's, I mean, as you said, in tech specifically, users come first. And it's so interesting that you were able to find this little niche, I guess, and and go off on this, on this six-year journey. Um, that's super cool. So talk to us a bit about how then, because I know you started Tea Public while you were still at Busted Teas, how then that idea came about? And that started. Sure. So we go, we spend the next two years growing Busted Teas and it works. Um, but the way, that, the way that we did that was um, we wanted to remain profitable. And so we built customer acquisition and retention models that were really dialed uh, down to the penny um, that allowed us to, you know, acquire a certain number of customers profitably, retain them and sort of get the thing going. Um, but once we had done that for two years, we got our pricing down, you know, we, we sort of, we did write the ship. Um, we're in an environment at that point in 2013 where the rest of the market, particularly online retail, is in group buying and in flash sale. And you have folks in New York, like fab.com, who go from zero to 100 million in 18 months. You have Living Social and Groupon just going crazy at that time. They have you know, every email address in the country, basically. And we are now competing in the ad market against those players. Um, whereas, it, as, you know, just two years earlier, a little bit more wide open. You know, we're Busted Tees, sort of 2011 and earlier was one of the, like, you know, beta Facebook advertisers. Um, and, and, and it was cheap. You know, Facebook was trying to figure out how their ad platform worked. And, and we were sort of, you know, putting, th throwing some water through the pipes. I mean, it, it was going certainly by 2011, but, um, but it was little, quite a bit less competitive than it is today. And, and those, the, the VC dollars and the unprofitability of Groupon and Living Social and Fab were driving up the prices of, of the ad market. And we said, we, we have this little t-shirt brand <laughs> and we, our, our intention is to not take venture and grow this profitably and sustainably. And we're, we're entering a market environment where that seems like totally <laughs> impossible now. Um, and so 
I felt like we had probably reached our potential with Busted Tees at that point. Mm. And so was starting to think about what I was going to do next broadly, start another company. You know, I never thought I would be there for more than two years. So I was about on time. Um, Josh and I are talking about that openly. Um, and at that time, we came across a new technology, which was this printer that's made by this Israeli company called Cornet. It's a digital printer. Everything that we were doing was done through screen printing. It's the way it's been done for 50 years. Um, I used to say, you know, my grandfather could have run, he was in textiles. He could have run busted tees if, if it had been, if it, if there had been a shop on the street instead of it being online. Um, we saw this new digital printer that you could send it a digital file and it would print as many colors as you wanted on demand, made to order, same day. And we said, um, that is really interesting. If, if the quality is good and the price goes down over time, that's going to completely change the market of printed goods, essentially, clothing or otherwise. Anything that has a graphic on it, this will disrupt if this technology scales. And so we started thinking about what is the business that we could build off of this technology that we can scale without taking venture and without relying on paid acquisition. Mm. And businesses that scale without paid acquisition are those that are uh, machines for organic search and machines for social. And we started thinking about what kinds of businesses are those. <laughs> and in the case of organic search, it's marketplaces. And obviously, I had experience in marketplaces. And in the case of social, it is user-generated content. Uh, at the same time, we're looking at Josh's previous businesses, College Humor and Vimeo. College Humor was the star. College Humor, when they sold in 2006, was the business that everybody thought was going to be, you know, some combination of what YouTube and Facebook is today. It, it was a really hot, you know, brand. And Vimeo was not, <laughs> Vimeo was, was sort of just came along for the deal. Mm. Now, six years later, Vimeo had continued to scale year after year after year, and, and, and College Humor was starting to come up against a really competitive media environment, use like all sorts of other stuff that were that were prohibiting it. And we thought about that, and sort of started experimenting. And 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 over the course of maybe six months, we started building some stuff on the side that amounted to. Can we build the Vimeo for graphic artists instead of video, video videographers? Um, and this on-demand technology is what will allow us to do that because we don't have to take inventory for these people. Uh, we can print on-demand for them. We can allow them to leverage everything we know about e-commerce, uh, about you know customer acquisition and retention. Um, but we'll have a machine for organic search because we'll have so much content and we'll have these artists who are sharing their stores um, so they'll bring in free social traffic and we won't have to rely on paid. Fair, uh, truly, we had very minimal aspirations for this. <laughs> it, it was just, let's, let's try this on the side. We took $200,000 out of Busted Tees, built the site, got some artists on there with you know part-time some of the Busted Tees employees and put it up. And, and that, was, that was it. 
wow, that was it, but not for long. <laughs> I, I find, find this just conversation fascinating. I think that it's just so funny. I think so many of us think, oh, you know, we might think, I'm going to go out there, start the next YouTube, I don't know, whatever it is, you know, Vimeo. And, and I think there's almost such, such magic in having kind of that not much, not not much aspiration, but just I've got this idea. Let's just see what happens with it. I think it takes the pressure off. What were some of your early challenges with getting T Public to kind of really get going? When we just in the first six months, we put the website up, and we were trying to. I think it's aligned with what you just said. I, I completely agree. I mean, if you can, if you can. Just remove your expectations. This is pretty much a good lesson for life. If you can remove your <laughs> expectations, like things will go better. Yeah. Um, when we, when we, you know, in the first couple months, we had some expectations for what the product would be, um, and in the very, very beginning, we thought it was going to be more of, of, of like a Kickstarter for T-shirt model, and and we were really hung up on the fact that print on demand was more expensive. Uh, than screen printing. And so we said, well, well, we'll do the print on demand, but if we can get certain designs to, to a threshold of screen printing, then we'll screen print it. And, and that way, you know, the margins will be better. And so we were really hung up on that. So we were trying to do that. And, and it, it really didn't work and it's not what the market wanted. Um, but at that point, at least we had a product. Mm -hmm. And then we could take that product and we sat down with hundreds of artists got in a room, sat down with an artist, got on the phone, sat with an artist and said, tell me about your life. Tell me about how you design. Tell me about what you want, what's missing. And, and we just started then shaping the prototype that we had into exactly the thing that they wanted. Um, those, those initial artists that we had designed the platform, we, we didn't have much vision. I mean, we just said, we're just going to do what they want to do. We said, what's a 10 out of 10 experience? What would, what would make you freak out? Once we did that, we sort of came out with a V2 that was really this, that, that really took their insights in mind. Um, and within three months of launching the V2, it started to go. Mm. Um, it was really fast. And within a year, it was as big as Busted Tees. And within two years, it was twice the size of Busted Tees, and and it sort of just kept, it, it sort of just kept going. Um, and I feel that, um, you know, the thesis worked in the sense that the the core drivers for the business that we hoped, which were organic search and social, it worked. I mean, they they did drive the business, and so we we were right about that, and we were. Uh, and the and the artists were obviously right about what they wanted, and 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 other artists wanted it too. Mm. Wow, so cool! It's so interesting. So, talk to us a little bit about how we can get really clear on what our customer wants. Yeah, I think uh, I think one of our advantages with T Public was because uh, you know we didn't have this this huge vision of this business has to be X. We just said the model that we have with Busted Tees is broken. Here's a different model. Maybe it would work better. Um, we think that we could empower artists with this model. We think that this model is more aligned with what the internet does well, which is community. Whereas a brand like Busted Tees or any brand 
really isn't leveraging the power of the internet. It's just sort of, you know, using the internet as, as a storefront. Um, so, so we had some of that, but um, we didn't overly insert ourselves into the product or into what the business would be. Um, I think it's really critical that people are open-minded and, and, and allow the customer to drive. Um, it's almost, I mean, if I was doing it again, I would have done it. We wasted those first six months. I mean, we, we built the first prototype. We, sh- we should have done the same thing, right? Where, where you just, um, you, you need to be like pretty agnostic about what, what your business is, what your product is. Um, you need to do companies that I advise, um, they'll be asking me about, you know, this product decision or this product decision. And uh, I always say, it's like, I'm not going to tell you and you don't have the answer. Come back to me when you've talked to 50 of your customers. I mean, and, and I don't mean five, I mean 50. I mean 50 and I mean deep, deep conversations like the one that we're having, which is all about one product element. <laughs> um, and if you do that, uh, you know, people say this, right? Like, if you do that, um, it is it is it is amazing. It, then all of a sudden, it's like three months later, the thing goes, um, and you do that in way. I think what trips people up, particularly people who come from larger business backgrounds. I think this is something that I see. Say, I'm gonna I'm gonna generalize. Like, you know, you have a an MBA who's you know worked in corporate you know corporate finance or something. Uh, they'll say, yeah, but that's not, that doesn't scale. That's not scalable. We can't do that. It's like, <laughs> you know, it, it's, a, it's like a Silicon Valley trope, but it's like, do things that don't scale, yeah. you know, do, do things that don't scale um, for the first three or four years, keep doing things that we, we, we were doing things that didn't scale two years ago and it was scaled. Like it actually goes longer than you think. Um, and, and, and then, you know, you've got problems to solve and you solve them. <laughs> But, but, you know, you're in the position to do that. Mm. So many good takeaways, so many gems. I can see the quotes on our Instagram page already. I love it. Okay, so look, I, there is a couple more questions I really want to go into before we start to wrap up. The first one being, I want to just bring it back to that expectations piece. I thought that was really powerful. So, I mean, so many of us, myself included, you know, we have these huge aspirations and, and almost expectations of what we think we want our businesses or our careers to look like. And especially I think in our, you know, mid twenties and and whatnot, what what advice would you give around this in terms of maybe not lowering expectations, but just alleviating them a little bit? Yeah. I I think that, I mean, I'm a person who at, at 21 said, I want to be an entrepreneur. I want to start successful businesses. You know, I'm, I'm not sitting here saying mm-hmm. I'm a person who doesn't have a plan. Um, I mean, I, I designed the last 10 years of my life to be like what they are. Um, so I get it. Um, the thing though, that I think is important is I, I, I like in business a lot. I think about business a lot these days as, uh, as a natural ecosystem mm-hmm. and y- you can't, take some sort of invasive species and just plop it into any ecosystem and, ex- and expect that that is going to flourish. And, and my, what my point is there is um, you and your expectations are one input of millions of inputs within some sort of ecosystem that you're entering. And the ecosystem is, you know, at a high level, like the economy, <laughs> right? And then, and then it's the, the, the specific market within the economy that you're in. And it's the sub market of the economy and it's the local market that you're in. It means all, it's all of these things. 
And so the idea that you can control all of that and say, I am going to create X in all of these things. Even if you've planned it out, even if you thought about what all of those ecosystems are and why yours is a fit for that, which I think is a healthy exercise. I think you should do. I would do it. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to say, we're just going to go into this ecosystem and we're going to plant some seeds and we're going to see how the light is and we're going to see how much water it needs and we're going to see how it grows. And and you you have to you have to to plan to pivot. You have to, the plan has to be, mm-hmm. we're going to go in with some intention, we're gonna go in with some hypotheses, and we are going to expect to be surprised, to be proven wrong, and that, that, that it's gonna move in a different direction. And if, if you go in with, if that is the expectation, if the expectation is things are going, this is, it's not going to be what I set out to do. The, the business might be different. The product might be different. The market might be different. Then you'll say, okay, well, those are my expectations. So, so my advice is use that as, as what your expectation is for what's going to happen because I, I, it, it's so rare that it doesn't. It, I mean, I, I don't know many entrepreneurs who went in and said, yep, we said we were going to do this and it worked out exactly like that. So great. Such great advice. I love it. Okay, cool. So I want to quickly talk about the scale. Obviously, we've kind of ta- we've kind of talked about this is how you scaled T Public. But I mean, you got to a hundred million in sales in five years. Absolutely crazy. Talk to us a little bit about those last couple of years when you had the coach and 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 where, what did you do? Yeah, I think the thing the thing that happened for us really by 2017 was I was like, oh wow, <laughs> um, <laughs> we need to really shift our mindset from do things that don't scale, uh, startup mentality, just like you know, duct tape it together, get it out there. We have to just validate the product. We have to go win the market. Mm-hmm. To we have to build an internal organization and a product that that can, that can scale and can keep going. Um, and I found myself in, in completely new territory. And, and that is when I, when I did two things, as I had sort of said at the beginning, I reached out to my network. Um, I started um, meeting monthly with a group of CEOs and COOs from other uh, tech companies, fortunately, who most of whom had, had scaled much further than mine. And we're still doing that monthly, and it's it's just one of the most valuable hours of my month. Mm. Um, and I got a coach who had scaled a business to you know five hundred people, um, so that I could figure out with him, you know, how do I build a management structure? How do I turn non-managers into managers? How do I build uh, you know an operational structure where there is none? Um, and I started thinking, okay, if in three years we're going to be size X. You know what is the business that that needs to support that? And 2017 was that year was the hardest year for me for for, for T Public um, because I was so out of my element and uncomfortable. Um, I had gotten so used to those first scrappy years. I was really good at that and comfortable with that. And and now it's like actually T Public. I mean, the main realization and the thing that I had to do and I'm still doing to some extent today is. T public will no longer be successful because Adam is going to hustle <laughs> and make it so. It will yeah. be successful because because we'll have built an organization, you know that that can do it. And so I I, I made my startup um, the org uh, and the people, and and I had to really start devoting all of my energy into the people who worked at T public, 
and and empowering them, and so, you know, so so that so that it, it, it could scale, and, and had to learn how to how to do that. <laughs> <laughs> so many learnings, so much we're learning from you as well. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness, Adam, we've had an absolute blast. Your knowledge is just incredible. I just want to take a moment to acknowledge you for the phenomenal work you've done and that you're doing for showing us, you know, young leaders that if you just put one foot in front of the other, if you raise your hand, if you keep knocking on the door, if you, you know, find the right peers and people, you can do it. You can actually get out there and, and make something happen for yourself. And we really appreciate you for that. Well, I appreciate you for that. You're, do, you're doing that as well. You're showing everybody that as well. So, so very much appreciate the work that, that you're doing and getting the stories out there and getting everybody talking. Love it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay, so we're going to finish up with our final question, which is how we finish all of our interviews here at the Pierce Project. And that is, what is the value of pursuing what you're most passionate about? I think the value is uh, building your um, mental and emotional wealth. Mm. I think... um, I think it is that that the uh, the way that you become successful and, and 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 you know the way that you become happy is that uh, you're fulfilled by what you're doing and and that you're uh, that you're rich in your mind um, and and that's fairly achievable as long as you're as, as long as you're pursuing your passions. I think um, I think that 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 purpose unfolds. I love it. Adam, ladies and gentlemen, we've had an absolute blast. Where can people learn more about you and Tea Public? Tea Public is is www.teapublic.com. Um, I am um, not super super. You know, I don't do a lot on social media or anything like that. But you can find me on LinkedIn, on Twitter at AGBS. Awesome. We'll link them up in the show notes. Thanks so much again, Adam. And for everyone else listening, we will end with that. Peers, that's a wrap. Thank you for tuning in to the latest episode of the Peers to Peers podcast. We hope you've enjoyed your introduction to our latest guest peer and that you find them as gung-ho as we do, which is our way of saying inspirational. For more, make sure to subscribe to our show on iTunes, Spotify, or any app where podcasts are played and leave us a review. We produce with passion and it doesn't stop here to see what else we're up to visit thepeersproject.com or follow us on instagram at thepeersproject we'll have fresh real talk for you next week peers until then if you need inspiration look amongst your peers